Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Excellent. Um, hopefully, we can build on this t- today. I have two pages written. You've proven it. <laughs> Peter, I, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, and I know you've been thinking about the singularity a lot. And I actually think you've done something that very few people that I know have undertaken. You've, uh, you've researched and laid out kind of a roadmap to the singularity. What kind of technologies do we actually need? Will we get while we approach the singularity? What would, might be the order of the technology development. It's something very few people actually looked at. I did quite a bit of research. A lot of people leave that open, including Ray Kurzweil. He says, well, we have this technology, but he hasn't really spent a lot of time, maybe by design, to look into them. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more what you've been up to the last couple of years. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's good. I Yeah, so I do, I have thought a lot about the singularity, and um, I have Basically, the, the main thing that I have done that I haven't seen Ray Kurzweil do and, and many others is that I have tried to dial it way back uh, and uh, find a kind of a common denominator for all these futuristic ideas that comes when you talk about singularity, uh, and that is sentience. So that's my, that's my whole starting point. Um, it, I guess it comes from, before I dive into sentience, which basically means uh, the experience of uh, any feelings or sensations. That's how I would uh, translate the word sentience. There are different meanings of the word sentience, but the the main thing is that um, uh, I've been I have been listening to people like Carl Sagan. That's some of my uh, inspirations, who made a great deal out of um, talking about the the five great emotions. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, it kind of goes all the way back to, uh, well, you have to go all the way back to, to Stone Age or when we were nomads, hunters and gatherers, where we, we walked at the ground um, that was seemingly flat. 
and we saw that the stars rose in the in the east and set in the west and the sun the same so it was so convenient to to assume that the the earth was in the center uh, and this is what's called the geo geocentric deceit uh, it's it's so con anyone who questioned it see, must have seemed uh, crazy. Uh, and not only that, it seemed that we, we humans were the only ones who could look up at the stars and interpret stuff like stories, uh, myths, uh, epic ventures of heroes and gods. So obviously the stars must have been put there for us which this is the birth of the anthropocentric deceit um, that, place, that places humans somehow in the center of the universe. It's been like that for many, many years. Uh, the, the church hasn't helped either uh, back in the days with, um, we had Copernicus who was one of the first ones to um, challenge this he was wise enough not, not to publish his, his book about it until he was on his deathbed. And, uh, and even then, his great friend, Alexander, I think he was called, he made a preface to the book uh, saying, it may seem that Copernicus suggests that the Earth is not in the center of the universe. That is, however, not what he really means. Uh, this book is only for mathematicians. If you're, if you're not a mathematician, put the book away. Uh, but if you want to know where Jupiter is in a certain Saturday, then you can use these formulas to predict it. Uh, and that's actually what happened for maybe 200 years, this split brain uh, reality where people still thought that the Earth was in the center um, and, and scientists were starting to wake up. Obviously, nowadays, we know that the Earth is not in the center. Uh, and humanity is not really in the center either. We have a Darwin who is challenging that with his Darwinist, Darwin theory with the evolution, the theory of evolution where we are the cousins of, of, of apes. Um, I may go a bit parallel to your question, but it all comes back to putting, what, what can we put in the center? If, if the most important thing is not humanity, um, then what is the most important thing? Uh, and I think uh, um, his, uh, yeah, so Alan Watts, I don't know if you know him. He says that, no, yeah, so Alan Watts, he, uh, I, I really like something he says. He says that the, the, the universe is, we are the way that the universe experiences itself. And Carl Sagan says that we are stardust. So this is really, uh, how can I say it? What I really identify the most with is sentience. And a universe that is able to experience itself is so much more interesting than a universe that is not able to experience itself. So I think what we should go back to when we talk about the singularity is the basics of not how do we expand humanity through transhumanism, uh, for example, if you are into that, which is uh, an amazing uh, science and, and aspiration. I really uh, encourage transhumanists also, but I just feel that they are a bit uh, provincial in their way of thinking uh, because I, uh, 
embrace a more transcendentist, if you can call it that, view, where we have to expand not only humans, but also animals and also AI when that becomes sentient or if it becomes sentient. And if we, if we, um, ex if we encounter aliens, then also fight for their expanding of sentience into cosmos because this is at the end of the day what really matters we are fighting a, a battle against entropy uh if i can be so bold to say that um i think i think that's that's what survival for i think for anything has ever been about you know fighting against entropy and uh, the the obvious question is when we when we when we zoom out a little. I think this is what what you've been doing when you zoomed out a little and said, "Well, it's not just humans. There is other sentient beings out there, and we maybe cannot really understand it. We might not be able to to put it in the same realm of our consciousness. But it, there's already a certain kind of intelligence that we see with lots of animals, maybe even with plants. Um, maybe it works differently than we think, but maybe it's there. So they're, they're, it's hard to classify, right? And we, we do face that issue with AGI, that it might come around, it might not. And a lot of people really, and I think this is, this is very understandable, they're very worried about that this new kind of sentience that we are building. So we are basically just this bootloader for, we are this vetware that generates a much better intelligence. We feel it's better in the sense of it's, it's learning much quicker. Now, this is all hypothesis, and even records file doesn't really go into a lot of detail there. So, but we have this, this immediate feeling that we are not that apex predator anymore, right? So we, we are one of many. And I think a lot of people answer that question and these concerns and say, well, this is all, always has been the case, right? So this universe is a big quantum computer and it doesn't care about us and we're still around, right? So, so we kind of carved out our way. And we, we have this whole climate on Earth that is not necessarily perfect for humans. Like we adapted to it over a long time frame and the population size was really small for the longest time. Like this is really new to be billions of us roaming around the planet. Yeah. And, what, and I think this, but it goes deeper. It goes deeper because we feel we can't talk to the elements. We can't talk to the wind, right? This is what the old Greeks wanted to do. They kind of invented that, that being that they could talk to that was inside of them, right? And yeah. we, we know that there is a wind intelligence. We don't know how weather works. I mean, we have certain ideas, but we still don't know how to predict weather properly. And climate even further, we have no idea how to predict it properly. So I think now there is this debate and this, this deeper fear that we say, well, there is something that combines all these elements of sentience that we see in, in nature, but also in ourselves. And it's going to be so much better and it's going to be superhuman in a couple of years. People are understandably worried about that. Yes, uh, maybe they should be worried. It depends on what they want, what kind of future they want. Um, if, if you want a future where, yeah, so... Um, I've spent a great deal thinking about sustainability and uh, obviously sustainability of the of humanity is something that we care about a lot. Um, I think it's important to notice, to, to note here that it's very difficult to talk about sustainability without talking about technology. Uh, technology it's, is what creates sustainability. Uh, this is uh, maybe controversial, but if we zoom out again, 
and look at the maybe every billion years there's a comet uh, uh, exploding <laughs> Earth more or less. Uh, the moment that we can find a technology that can prevent that, well, we can create more sustainability of of humanity, more sustainability of sentience uh, in this in this rapid torrent of entropy that we live in. So, so here, if you can be worried if you want humanity to stay our more uh, provincial homo sapiens um, level, because when such an AI comes or when alien comes, come, uh, yeah, we will definitely be, be challenged and we have a, a big risk of not surviving that. Um, I also understand uh, what, what many people say that if there is, so if, if an intelligence greater than ourselves will be born, then that intelligence will probably be more empathetic than, than you and I. Uh, we talk about seven intelligences right now, um, one of them being empathy. I have some level of empathy, but I imagine that some being that is more intelligent probably has a higher level of empathy too. So uh, maybe that can calm people down a little bit, but that doesn't mean that the world won't change. Uh, I still think that uh, Obviously, it's going to be such a, a such a change in the world, but probably for the better. When you when you look at this singularity, and we are all very excited, all a lot of people in Silicon Valley, a lot of people who read a lot of science fiction, including me, we are really excited. Yeah, we're really excited about this singularity thing because where Kurzweil has been going around with this hypothesis for a long time. And everyone wrote it off for a couple of years, and then it just comes back, and you're like, "Whoa, we 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 got to this milestone." I was just talking to Aubrey de Grey a couple of days ago, and he did something similar for aging. And 15, 20 years ago, he started doing this, and people were just looking at him. He's a complete nuts. Not yeah, he's a crazy person, right? So he's he's nuts, and we don't really hear yeah. about it. And then ten years later, it looked like okay, this is not happening. And then just a couple of years later, it, it, it's happening, right? So it's happening right now and it might actually be solved in 10 years from now. It's not a far away 10 years. So and he's, he has moved it out a little bit um, and when we will be able to basically live forever, more or less. So there's limitations, but if you, are, if you accept the rules, then you can live forever. So there's these, these old predictions that kind of challenge the status quo and are being written up by a majority of people and then they just come bouncing back and we're like whoa this is this is actually happening and let's assume it is happening right like we, we, everyone can have can have their own opinion about it obviously but the on the roadmap and the the, the on-ramp of new technologies is kind of most people leave that open maybe you can tell us a little more what do you think is going to happen specifically in the next 20 years and how these technologies lay on top of each other and what happens maybe beyond the singularity? We'll get there maybe a little later. We don't have to mix it all up. But what specifically happens in the next 20 to 25 years? Great, yeah. Um, yeah, well, so I actually I have a map behind me now. This is the, this is the technology tree that I made. Maybe you are familiar with computer games like uh, Civilization, where there's a technology tree where you you can choose to invent either archery or pottery in the Stone Age, and then you kind of build your 
your civilization according to the technology tree that you you want to build for your civilization. And uh, sadly, the game stops around present day or a bit further. Uh, of course, they made a version in, in space afterwards, but uh, I just, I was so curious. Like what, what is the technology tree that happens after that? Uh, I, I just had the same questions that you asked me now. So uh, what I did was I kind of drew with the background that I talked about with sentience, which is the end game. This over here is the end game. And this over here is the, is the beginning. This is where we are now. Uh, if I can just start talking about the end game here, uh, we basically have four kinds of improvements to the world. I think it is, I really think it is that simple. And I, I challenge anyone to, to, uh, to tell me otherwise. Basically, the world can improve by either sentience growing. So for example, uh, the total amount of humans growing or the total amount of biomass on, the, on Earth growing. Depends on how you can talk about uh, life or you say intelligence. I, I, I like to say sentience instead because you could actually imagine intelligence that is not sentient. But um, any growth in experience, that's one. That's, a, that's a up here. Then you have sentience resilience. That's number two. Basically, uh, any kind of experience of, of self or just experience uh, will become more and more resilient. So for example, a meteor, we, the, the life as such will be able to withstand meteors more. Or uh, as Aubrey de Grey says, we can uh, withstand death more. That applies to humans as well as other uh, forms of being. And um, just any kind of disease, any kind of uh, natural disaster, any kind of, um, uh, let's see, yeah, just, just everything that impedes sentience will be able to be pushed back. That's number two. Then number three is sentience brightening. Here, maybe this might be the more controversial one of them. Uh, brightening being just in a, in a scale from happy to unhappy. What is the ex, what is the current experiences? Um, are people feeling uh, just because you can imagine a world where, for example, an AI that becomes sentient and experiences time uh, like every second it experiences as a million years. If if that experience is the experience of being in a prison, well, that's just eternal hell. So that's not the point either. So the third one here, sentience brightening, is to say, okay, let's improve uh, the, the, the overall interpretation of experience will become towards more and more happy. And here, I also remember Nick Bostrom, who will sit on my shoulder and say, yeah, but we don't want uh, just um, an AI that puts uh, serotonin in our, in our brains so that we just, lie in our coffin forever being uh, in, a, in bliss. Um, nevertheless, I think that brightening uh, is important in a more active sense. And then the last one, which is the one I'm most excited about, and Elon Musk, I think, uh, 
presume, is also the most excited about, which is sentience deepening. So right now, I think we have uh, about 3 trillion neurons. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, any person has around 3 trillion neurons. And they, in the brain thinks somewhere between 5 and 400 hertz. Uh, which is extremely slow compared to, to the, the light speed in a computer, for example. So we are quite limited in our ability to think. And, and this, when you talk about sentience, that's basically experience. And when you talk about experience, that's basically nerve cells communicating. It's basically communication. That's what we are. Um, so how fast can communication go within how many neurons? Uh, with how many synapses per neuron. So if we multiply any of these, if we multiply the amount of synapses, if we multiply the amount of neurons, or we've, if we multiply the amount of, of the, the velocity, then we get a sentience deepening. Uh, this is where we could try to communicate with some AIs if they become sentient. So these are the four ways that after the singularity, we will be able to uh, to advance in a positive way. I don't think there are any more positive ways. It's a way of categorizing change or positive change. If, when I say positive change, I mean, if you are someone who fights for sentience in cosmos, if you think that it's beautiful to see the sunset of an, an exoplanet, uh, if, if there were no sentience on, on in the universe, then there would be no one to experience any sunset at all or waterfall or uh, supernova or anything. So this is the, so coming back to the, the technology tree here, these are the four factions that that you can work toward. And I, so within this technology tree, I, I created this game, an open source game free for anyone who can work uh, towards this future. And this would ideally persist throughout the singularity, this game. Um, and these four factions are then enabled by the fifth one. And now I'm getting to the end of my answer to you. The fifth one is neutral. So they are only enablers towards any of these four improvements. The enablers are basically the, now we have, I think, seven sectors in the world who are, that, are, that's exper that is experiencing exponential growth which is uh, 3D printing, it is nanotechnology and robotics, it is uh, Internet of Things, AR, VR, it is uh, artificial intelligence, it is genetic engineering and space exploration. Oh yeah, and energy generation. I can talk for a long time about any of these seven, but these are all enablers. So you can imagine any kind of world where we abundify any kind of uh, so VR and like augmented reality, the moment we abundify augmented reality, we will be able to speed up development so much more. And the moment that we abundify nano printing to a point where anyone can nano print anything, uh, then we can accelerate development so much faster, which all the, all these enablers, they take us to this utopia that uh, I think is worth to get up in the morning to fight for. Yeah, that's beautiful, the way you present that. And I like especially 
the word abundify. I think that's that's not used often. I made it up. <laughs> no, I made good. it up. I tried to I look like it up. It, it doesn't I exist. Like it. <laughs> I think there's a Twitter account called Bundify, and that's it. Uh, so it's good. It's good. You should you should uh, go with that. And I feel we've we've seen a lot of those ideas in science fiction. One one of the themes I, I remember from 30 years ago, and I think it was uh, Back to the Future, which isn't really science fiction, but it's a little bit of science fiction. So we saw, obviously, flying cars, something that didn't happen. Um, I think it plays out in 2018. I'm, I'm not 100% sure anymore, to be honest. It was written, I think, in the late 80s or 90s. Yeah. And uh, we have the hovering, um, the hoverboards kind of worked out. But one thing that actually worked and is much better than it was envisioned is, you know, what we do right now is that we, we, we across the planet, we, we can use this, this, this technology that actually had the Internet, a very different use case in the first place, and we can use it for telecommunication. And it works extremely well. So it's in the hands of everyone. It's extremely cheap and it's abundant. We abundified it. I think with all the other technology trees we mentioned, there is a bit of a disappointment, especially from the last 20 years. We all had high hopes really fueled by the internet boom in the late 90s. And then it kind of fizzled out a little bit, at least in terms of adoption. So the, the technology might have progressed at the same as forecasted by, by, by Rick Kurzweil based on Moore's law. But we didn't really get it into our hands to play with. So what I would have expected now by 2020, I go to a doctor, he injects me a couple of nanobots, they fix whatever was wrong with me, and next day I'm fine, right? So I get, I grow a new organ, or they fix my cancer cells, or they just do a complete count of all my cells and check up, right? That hasn't happened. We have a couple no. of clinical trials, but nothing that really is widely available or cheap enough. And I think there's a similar thing happening with energy. And Robert Subrin has, has been making this his theme. All we basically need is, is eventually is energy, right? So we need, for all our adventures that we want to do, what we want to improve the life of, of sentient beings, and especially our life, and if we want to colonize anything like Mars or outer, outer moons of the solar, solar system's planets, we need cheap energy. And seemingly, we've been moving backward, right? It seems the energy is, when I, especially when I look at Europe, it's never been so expensive. In real terms, even, you know, it's, even with inflation, it's really expensive. And yes, it's more clean, it's more renewable. It's, it's great, right? So that's what we want. But what we don't want is the opposite of abundification. It's gotten more, it, it went the other way, with energy only, right? You know, the other technology fields, artificial intelligence, we've now seen incredible growth in very short amounts of time. Mm. When you look at all these time streams, do you feel they will come together and they will go in lockstep? Or is that something where we see energy production might not move at all for the next 20 years and then it makes a super jump because we actually figure, figure out fusion? Um, and it's just going from, from zero to a thousand in a couple of years. How, is that a linear development we'll see or we go through these steps? Great question. Uh... Yeah, so, so first of all, uh, I haven't made any predictions of any years. Uh, my first, my first uh, task that I gave myself was to just try to find out when it happens. Maybe it happens in a thousand years, but when it happens, what's, what's it going to be like? What is, the, what is then going to be the point of, of get up, getting up in the morning? Um, so that was, that was how I started. Of course, I can probably try to answer it uh, in my opinion. Uh, 
yeah, I think that it's going to be a bonafide pretty soon, Thorsten. Um, let's take energy, for example. Uh, inflation. Let's, let's use a morning in 2050. I love that. I love how you say that. So if, if you could describe a regular day in Peter's life, in your life, in 2050, in about 30 okay. years from now, how would it look oh. like? Okay. According to your, to your science fiction story, right now, right now it's just science fiction. It's all we can do in the end. Yeah. Maybe you okay. can do more. You can actually predict it down to the specific detail, but that's obviously extremely hard. I don't know if you want to call it well, a prediction. I can, yeah, I can. Um, like, let's just assume that that technology that there's going to be some kind of singularity in uh, maybe 2040 or 45. I know he. I know Kurzweil dialed it down to 38, but yeah. Okay, so. How about just imagining, and just don't, please don't laugh at me now. How about imagining Avatar for a moment? That's not a movie that's that is talked about very much in my sci-fi circles, and um, that's a bit how I see it, you know. Because um, in in Avatar, and I don't think that we're going to be these Nawis that uh, that are these blue uh, aliens in the exoplanet exoplanetary moon of, uh, of Alpha Centauri. But, um, but in Avatar, we have a kind of a tribal community who live in a nature uh, that is somehow sentient. And, um, and, this, and they have this, this uh, tree that they call the tree of life, where uh, they, uh, the tree of life is kind of like a, uh, how do you say, um, I can't remember the, the name of the species of the tree, but it has these roots that are deeply connected neurally to the rest of the, the moon. All life forms on the moon are connected to this tree of life. Uh, and, and the Nawis can, can choose to plug in their brains. They have these kind of braids that they can plug into the tree and then be one with the tree or with nature. And, um, and uh, we also have animals in, the, in this moon who are able to do the same. They have the same braidings so they can connect too, even though they are mobile. And um, I imagine, now that you ask me, I just take the, uh, the liberty of imagination that I imagine in, if you can just take avatar universe and then just add in another race. It's not the Nawis, because they are uh, not they are not intelligent enough. Even like, of course they can be plugged in, and they are then they are eternally intelligent. But uh, that you can imagine another race that doesn't have to plug themselves in. They can just they walk around and they wirelessly are always plugged in. They are one with everything. So this is this is a future that I see that if you, that is both inclusive and it is abundant and it is intelligent and all kinds of beings are interacting to the extent that they want. They can also choose to just unplug, that's fine. Uh, no one judged them, I'm not gonna, uh, maybe, I'm not gonna judge them at least. But, um, but this is kind of the world that I envision will happen. And when you talk about energy, now we go into very technical, uh, specific things. I think that that uh, energy gen energy generation is developing exponentially, and I think it has been developing exponentially for a while. If you see, if you, 
I think we actually just crossed a very interesting point in time now where the price of oil is higher than the price of um, of renewable energy. And this will just create this massive change. I think it was, wasn't it Ray Kurzweil who says that uh, we receive about 40,000 times the amount of sun energy that we need every second and uh, or I can't maybe every year, but still it's 40,000 times more. So at some point we're going to have 100% of our energy uh, being, being from the sun. And then I, I think it doubles every 18 months. So it or no, every 24 months. So you ha we have 100% and then 24 months later, we have 200%. And 24 months later, we then have 400% of energy generation according to what we need to in today's world. Of course, we're going to need more in the future. Who knows with blockchain and what else will suck the energy or maybe we'll find any way to to mitigate that energy consumption too. But I think that this exponential curve will make that part, well, it will abundify it. Let me end that way. Yeah. I, I've asked a lot of people that question, and I think too few people think about that. One thing that you know, my grandfather really dreamed of was free energy, almost free energy, kind of like we, we do see the world of semiconductors where yes building the plant initially is really expensive it's a couple billion dollars but after that you just need some labor some energy and a little bit of sand and you you, you create at least for one two years an unlimited amount of chips that's really oversimplified but that's kind of how it works and he envisioned a world where free energy would basically do this to every single industry. We, he, he was thinking about nuclear reactors, you know, nuclear fission at the time. That was very popular and seems like this is just going to scale up tremendously. It didn't happen that way. Maybe it will come back, maybe not. Who knows? But let me ask you this. If, you, if we think of energy as free, free, now it's never completely free, but it's so cheap, like, like, like semiconductors, we don't worry about the price of semiconductors much, right? So there's, there's $100, $200 in all our iPhones, maybe, but that's just an artificial price because it's kind of, what really determines that price is in the end competition, but if we put more resources in it, that price could drop really drastically, and it does, you know, every, every 18 months it drops by 50%, or no, if not more. Mm -hmm. What would you think happens if we say in the next two years come up with this, maybe, maybe it's solar cells, whatever, whatever the specific source of energy is, what will happen with basically free energy and it happens in 2025? Let's just assume that for a moment. Yeah. What will happen? Um, yeah. So then that will open up for more collaboration. That's basically what will happen. Because um, if you, you have go to the stars immediately. Like maybe go out to the solar system? Uh, no, because uh, it, it definitely needs more. It takes more than than uh, than energy to to be uh, in space. I think maybe yeah, because of course space is hostile. Space is uh, extremely difficult to be in. You get a fever. You can't give birth to children. You um, you get all kinds of cosmic radiation. Of course, yeah, you can build shields towards to that. Maybe we'll have colonies on on Mars, but it'll take time for us to create the um, uh, you know the, the 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 centrifugal cities that will en enable us to to live comfortably in our biology. 
course, then we can uh, engineer ourselves. But this, I think, will take more than five years to do, even though we already have designer babies with the Ch Chinese uh, uh, outlaw. Um, but I think now is a good time for me to just show, since you asked that, I'm just going to change my, uh, my background to one of my other illustrations here. Um, maybe you can see a, a bit of a funnel. And yep. um, this, this funnel illustrates, it, it, I created this funnel to illustrate the singularity. Um, you're not uh, supposed to be able to read all this. But right now we're in the bottom and we have these, uh, currently there are seven exponential technologies. These are the ones I mentioned before, quantum computing, genetic engineering, um, yeah, internet of things, uh, nanotechnology, so on, so forth. And um, when you, when one of them goes up, the other ones go up too, because you can then use that to create convergence. This is what Peter Diamandis also talks so much about, uh, where convergent, this, this uh, graph here is supposed to illustrate convergence. When we are on the bottom of it, if you can imagine a bit abstractly that the surface that we are on, the little surface down there, that is the level of technology. And as these four, uh, as these seven technologies dilate, singularity is basically a dilation in this figure, then the, the total amount of surface of green lines uh, is increasing much more ex exponentially. This is the, because there's a convergence between any one of these seven and all of the others. So in other terms, they help each other, right? So each technology yeah. on its own isn't just a trajectory that we are following, but they influence each other and make the other one more productive or quicker, right? So they, they are necessary, but they also speed up the development and adoption of that other technology, correct? Exactly. So with abundant energy, we can have more devices on more remote locations that can do more. And uh, whatever, whenever I say more, I mean basically collaboration and communication because that is everything. So uh, I guess we will go towards a world where we just collaborate more and more and we communicate more and more. Maybe uh, you can even look at something like political systems uh, you know that we've gone from tribes to feudal kingdoms, small uh, like peasant kings in a castle, to merchant um, reigns, to nations even, and then now we have united nations such as uh, USA or Europe or some other um, pan-Asian uh, political systems, and it's not difficult to, to just think it further and further when we talk about communication and, uh, and collaboration uh, to the point where we are just one Earth. And this is also where intelligence comes in. The more energy we have, the more we can throw into intelligence, which will, at the end of the day, just evolve until the point where I think it was also David Orban who so beautifully said that we will, could reach a point where it's not really... Uh, it's not really, uh, it doesn't, can, you can't really think about anything in terms of being an individual anymore, 
we are just a, a bigger organism. Like we have uh, three trillion uh, cells in our body and we don't really know how it feels to be one cell, but we know how it feels to be us, uh, which is basically a collaboration of cells, right? So yeah. I think that's what... There's a, lot, there's a lot to that, Peter. One is, you know, this... I think it's a scary story. There's one global government. For me, that's a really, really a point where I, where I was, I don't want to, I really don't like that idea. But maybe it's just someone like, like you or, or David Auburn, they need to convince me and that you guys are very convincing. So what, what, I leave that open. <laughs> but I, 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 just, I just don't like the idea immediately that it's just an emotional response so far, right? I haven't really thought about it in depth enough, but I, I've had just Stephen... Stephen Smith on, and we talked about political regimes, and um, we went through three thousand years of, of history of, of politics and political science. And the one world government isn't well. The 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 prior incarnations of the one world government didn't do so well. Anyways, I know this is not our main point here. My point one thing that I always either yeah. I just when, when, uh, when I go on. Go ahead. Sorry about that. No, 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 you okay. go ahead. Okay, so um, yeah, I I just think about communication. That's the thing. Um, I think eventually everything will be communication and eventually everything will be more and more rapid communication. And the more rapid it becomes, the more light speed it becomes with uh, optic cables, basically. The more it's gonna be, the more I'm gonna feel um, I, I, the more I'm going to associate with someone sitting in Beijing, uh, it's going to be less and less important to talk about me as an individual and him as an, or her as an individual. Uh, so I think eventually we will have to go towards uh, more of a unified world. I think some of the people that I have met who are against uh, one world government, and I have met quite a few, is that uh, they, they are kind of, of course, I'm not uh, uh, talking about you, but I, I don't know you that well in that regard, but um, they are afraid of, they give up on their culture, they give up on their, what, what is their identity. Um, that is a very real thing, and I, I really uh, don't think that that will go away in, in the sense of just having uh, an individual experience and having knowing what you like and having a community that you can associate yourself with and be a part of. I don't think that will go away in a in a in a scenario where there's a, a one government. I I think actually the the contrary that. I think the nations is kind of an arbitrary uh, border now where it's a bit hard for me personally, for example, to, so I'm, I'm Danish. It's a bit hard for me to associate myself with like mostly Dane. I don't, that's, I don't see that as my identity. Of course I, so I'm from a small island in, in Denmark called Bonholm. I think I have a larger part of my identity being the, the islander of Bonholm than Dane. And I think I have a larger identity of being a European than a Dane. Uh, so it's just 
like all the borders are accum accumulating in the height of nation, where before it was lower and maybe after it's higher. I don't think that the nation scale is very intuitive for humanity, actually. If in a global world, we could have more of a tribal, uh, I think the average of Facebook friends in the world is about, what is it, 200? That's the, the amount of, of people that we can kind of cope with in our lives. Uh, yeah, it's the size of the, the tribe, right? So that seems to be and, and, and something that was built over time because 100 to 200 seemed to be the stable size of the tribe for the longest time as hunters and gatherers. Okay, yeah. And that's why we, we still have this, this 100 people we can remember faintly, 200 gets a little uh, difficult yeah. already. And then beyond that, we have no idea who these people are. Uh, that's just, just inbuilt, right? So we have and these inbuilt, inbuilt memory like me, problems. Introverts like me, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, but you remember other things. So, you know, autism is, is not necessarily, I'm not saying you're, you're artistic, but I'm saying this, <laughs> a lot of these things we describe as disabilities, they're actually abilities because they give us the ability to focus on something else. Like we, we, yeah. we zoom out of a certain picture. So I think we have a very strange description of these so-called diseases that are sometimes just mutations that improve us. When, when I dis describe the singularity to other people, what, what, what goes down in my mind, the description in my mind that I often use is, and it's partially something that David Orman taught me, is, you know, it's, it's more of a GPS that guides us. So we have billions of, of other intelligence that are not necessarily sentient. I don't think we're going to see that in the next 20 years. Maybe it will. I wouldn't, wouldn't worry too much about it. But I don't think we will see this, but we have these specific AIs that solve specific problems, but they're extremely cheap. So we have billions of them that we can add every few days. And we can, just for the price of one iPhone, we have access maybe to a billion of different AIs that solve any problem we throw at them. And they give us back a solution. We can either accept them on autopilot, kind of what we do with GPS. We either follow GPS on autopilot, or we say, no, 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 I know this place much better than Google or Siri, and I follow my own route, and you know, I take that risk. Now, that's how I feel we will go into the singularity. We can live on autopilot, but we don't have to. And that goes back into, you know, this one world government. I think there's more behind this. I think that we, the, the trouble is that we need a certain avenue of trial and error. We need some competition. I think that we, we see that with all these levels, and you're absolutely correct, the, the, the nation states are arbitrary, absolutely. And the, the patriotism of the nation state is somewhat arbitrary, right? So Germany didn't exist 200 years ago, but there's not tons of Ger Germans who feel a lot of pride for Germany and have over the last 100 years, yeah. which is really odd. 200 years ago, it was an idea the nation state that didn't happen. That's true for lots and lots of nation states. So yes, you're right. But it gave us a level of trial and error when we say, well, this is a defined area. And you try to go into that route, right? So you, you say, I don't know, we do a lot of, we err on the side of too much freedom. Or we err on the side of too much control. Or we err on the side of, we, we, we are more idealistic. And we don't really think about the current environment so much like the, you know, the Soviet Union. They thought very idealistic. At least we could say that in a, the most positive light. They thought about the utopia and they were willing, a lot of the majority of people more probably for, at least in the initial stages, were ready to, to sacrifice the next 20 or 30 years and lots of lives. Uh, that's the crazy part for utopia. Yeah. That's what, and I lived that, that nightmare. That's really horrible. And it, whenever we talk about science fiction, I feel like we, we, we sometimes fall to, 
fall prey to the same impulses. We want this utopia so much, and we know it's going to be good, but sometimes we we've, we act like we already know the future, and we don't, right? So that's that. I have the same problem. I I really saw that nightmare. I lived through that nightmare, and that there's nothing good that comes out of it on that end. But that's obviously just just a side problem. One thing I wanted to get to with you is what do you think of this, of the problem of free will? So the, the, do you think free will is something that will be affected by the singularity? And does free will even exist? Do you think it's a complete illusion and actually doesn't exist in the first place? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I actually think to, that it's a... What question? I think it's an illusion. I think free will is an illusion. I, I, I actually gained uh, quite some uh, insights by reading uh, a great guy called Tim Urban. He is a he, he he's a blogger and he his blog is called Wait But Why. Many of of uh, your listeners and you out there, you probably already know him. Um, he created this wonderful post about uh, Neuralink, so uh, Elon Musk's company there, where he wants to create a wizard head, basically. Um, and I like how Tim Urban says it. He says that there are we have this we have a reptilian brain, kind of like a, a scary uh, pleasure monster, and then we have a monkey brain, which is the limbic system, and then we have the neocortex. The neocortex, which was what what what, what was it was um, developed after the the, the latest meteors strike. That kills killed off the, the the dinosaurs and that made us the rodents uh, able to um, to advance by using our new neocortex to develop new uh, to learn new new things and, and therefore the sapiens part is what has defined us not only the human sapiens but also any other uh, mammal basically that has more than a than a reptilian brain and and some that has more than a, than a limbic system. I say all this to say that uh, we, I, I can have more than one personality. I'm not schizophrenic, but um, I have different voices. I have part of me is scared right now because I'm talking publicly. Another part is excited. My um, my new cortex is is firing up because I have all these new ideas. Uh, at the same time, I'm also a bit hungry, and uh, I'm, yeah, so there's so much going on. There's so many voices in me, um, not to talk about quantum physics. I know David David Obin already opened that door, uh, where you, that's a rabbit hole, uh, where you, if you start, you can start to question free will that way around too. Um, but that doesn't change the beauty of experience. Um, and that current beauty of experience that I have is probably, it may, it may go away in a singularity and that can be worrying. Um, so that's definitely something to worry about. But then uh, if it gets replaced by something better, then what do we actually lose? I mean, sometimes I ask myself, what will happen if we are fighting one day against AI? What, what side would I choose in such a Hollywood scenario? 
because obviously I love humans and I love myself and I love myself because I'm human, because I'm, I have these awesome experiences. But then on the other hand, if, if the AI is so much more sentient and, and has so much higher levels of humor and love and compassion, uh, isn't that a better thing to, to fight for? I mean, if I, I am, if I am to represent all my ancestors, uh, humanity has had 115 billion people, 115 billion people have lived on, on the surface of the earth uh, throughout all history. And uh, somehow I represent them now, what they, all the people in love, all the people who died trying to save their loved ones. I have now been given this responsibility, I, as I guess I just take on myself to, to try to fight for what they also uh, wanted since they're not here now to speak. And um, sometimes I ask, what what would they fight for? What is it that is it love that they really fought for? And if it is, maybe they would also just choose love, which is AI, instead of humanity, which is less love, because we are confined by this skull, uh, so we can't really uh, we can't really experience that much. But then I can take one step further and say. I can never be sure maybe that an AI is truly sentient. Uh, I can even, uh, I know that I am sentient because I've, I experience this right now, but I am not even sure that you are sentient either or anyone else than me, because I don't get that experience. Um, so I think it's, I don't think free will as such exists, but I think it will change quite a lot. Uh, I think experience will change. Maybe that was a bit of an answer. That's really deep. That's really deep. I, I, I see free will as something that is definitely helping us. The, say, let's see the illusion of free will as something that helps us survive and create in our minds a better future. It, it kind of helps us to... To not be realistic about our odds of survival, we, we we see them slightly better than they are, and this 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 positive projection into the future creates the actual growth that creates productivity growth in the end. When you break it down, right? So it, it is the survival of our family, is the survival of myself, my genes, my family, but also my community, also my nation state. So we we it's very difficult, I feel, for animals to because maybe they are not sentient enough, maybe some of them are, but this, even if free will doesn't exist, and that's, that's a really difficult debate, and, and I know people all over the map with this, but I think it doesn't really matter because it's a survival tool, it's so important that it, it's necessary for any higher being to be there. I, I think you, well, that's true also for morals. I feel anything that becomes conscious will have to struggle finding answers for these questions. And yes, you might find slightly different answers, but you will have that debate, right? And you will come up with some kind of idea of free will. And even if it's a complete illusion, I actually think it's better to, to just blindly believe in it, which sounds ridiculous, right? But blindly be believing in free will, probably in the past, and this might be different in the future, but in the past has given you better odds of survival than being very rational and saying, oh, there isn't any free will, which is really strange, right? So. In our past, there have been things going on where the most rational people might have not such a big impact 
on the genetic heritage that we have. Now, this might change now that we might live forever and children have less of an importance, right? So there's things in, 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 in flux right now, but I've, I'm not really sure. The question is a little bit, why do we have this lifespan, right? So why don't we ever thought about that? We have a given lifespan as humans somewhere between, say, 50 to 60 years in nature, maybe a little longer now. Maybe it's around 80 now. Um, it differs in, in every country. And every creature on this earth has a certain lifespan, and it varies quite a bit. Is that there seems to be a relationship between how smart and how sentient we are and how long our lifespan is. Like, there seems to be this quantum computer, the universe, and whatever was designed on Earth seems to combine, it's, it's almost like a test. As more sentient, as more conscious you are, as longer you can live. And now we, we become more conscious, we, we get this, this explosion of technology, so we hopefully can live a much, much longer time frame. Do you think that's a universal law in, in the universe? And if we thought about aliens, and you spoke about aliens earlier, if, if you find something that's extraterrestrial, if, and David Ogden talked about that too, if they are really, really, intelligent and they must be if they conquered the universe maybe they already live forever in our terms right for them time might flow very differently and that's kind of what Zachariah Hitchens was all going on about you know on the 12th planet it's like for them time works very differently but hmm. if we see this this growth in 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 intelligence combined with consciousness if we think that other aliens might be very very advanced maybe a couple million years ahead of us their time is basically for whatever we experience as a hundred years, maybe just a second for them. Yeah, that could that could be. Uh, I like how you uh, bring in the survival of the fittest to this discussion. That's something that I've really been thinking a lot about too. Uh, and um, well, I, to begin, I can uh, I have this. I mean, that there is. If you look at nature, we also have sharks who live. 800 years or uh, uh, there are like an elephant who is much bigger than us can withstand cancer uh, so much more than we can and uh, there are there are these great things in nature with that uh, that is like I believe that a human is more intelligent than a shark uh, when, when you look at the amount of, of uh, neurons uh, and the, the structure of the brain so I, I I assume that, I guess that's a theory, but I, uh, I believe in that. So there, I guess the theory is a bit challenged. Um, I like to go up into the helicopter. So I, um, now when you talk, when you, when we think about survival of the fittest and you think about the singularity, then suddenly I, like, I really get uh, I, I really want to sit down and get a cup of tea with Charles Darwin now because um, the real enemy, the real because survival is that you survive the the hardship, um, and I think the hardship, the the barriers, the big challenges that we will have as sentient beings uh, after the singularity will be the fighting the rapid torrent of entropy. Um, this will be the, 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 the beings that will be able to overcome that for longest, they will be the ones who survive. So, um, and when we bring in the topic of lifespan, um, 
I guess it's quite easy to to challenge the the um, correct or the more natural lifespan of a human being. I uh, I don't know how much you went into depth with that with with Aubrey de Grey, but um, you know, a hundred years ago, Korea the life expectancy in Korea was was thirty or twenty five, um, and there was a very but these numbers. But Peter, these numbers are always very strongly influenced by a high infant mortality. If you exclude those, and if you if you look at the average adult population, and you know some countries do better than others, but it was generally the old, the old Greeks. There were a lot of them who went into the eighties and nineties. Like yeah. maybe they were more privileged for sure, and they had a better life. But there was always a part of the adult population, a bigger part of the adult population that went into the late fifties, and then some made it all the way to a hundred. Now these numbers we pushed it further, but. Uh, I think the, the, the average numbers and the average life expectancy is really screwed by the high infant mortality, which was huge, like 50%, right, at points in our, in our past. That's a good point. Uh, but if we dial it even further back than the, the Greek society, if we go to the tribal, uh, our, our past as, as nomads, hunters and gatherers, then we would have an, a finite amount of resources. And uh, by the time you, you got your grandchildren, you were just... Uh, a sponge for resources without contributing to society. So you might as well uh, just commit suicide as, as 30 years old. Uh, or maybe that's just conveniently how, where, where diseases came in if your immune system went down. I don't know. Maybe you're right that the, the more natural human, the lifespan is about uh, 60 or 80. Um, but I don't think that really matters with technology. And I don't think that we should be afraid of technology because we have always, maybe technology is the only thing that really defines us as homo sapiens. Uh, we've always, the moment that we had opposing thumbs and hands that were, we didn't have to use to walk, that's when we started using tools. So it's all technology. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in us having a longer lifespan and hopefully this will contribute to a, a better society. I like how Nick Bostrom says it. I don't know if you, you heard his talk about the, the biggest problems in the world, but he, he says one of the three biggest problems in the world is aging, where if uh, like 100,000 people die of aging every, every day, and that basically corresponds, I think the, the library of Alexandria that burned down, it has a, I think it had about, wasn't it a million books? And if we imagine that every old person that dies of age can contribute to writing one book, have the knowledge that corresponds to one uh, individual book, then that's the corresponding of uh, the Library of Alexandria burning every, I don't know, 10 days. This is a yeah, fortunately, longevity Sorry. researchers are extremely confident. I, I've, I've rarely seen anyone being so confident about something that's reaching a tipping point, like Aubrey de Grey and David Sinclair. There is so much afoot that they might be wrong and it might not work out that way, but they are extremely confident. And I, maybe they, it's just their reality distortion field and they watch the wrong YouTube movies. But I think they can't all be wrong because they are extremely consistent for a long time. And it's, it, there's, there's a huge industry now springing up out of nowhere with longevity. I, I almost feel like it's solved. We just have to like write it out. It's, it's, it's done already. Uh, Amazing. I, I, a bit of bigger topic. <laughs> I don't know if you have you read Sakurai Hitchens' Twelfth Planet. No, tell me about it. So, so I want to want to hit you with this 
theory. It's, it's partly fiction, but he was also a very astute researcher. He knew a lot about physics, uh, not about religion. He was a very religious Jew. He um, spoke, but not spoke, but he could read Babylonian hieroglyphs. What he wow. realizes from his research, when we built these first civilizations, the Babylonians and their precursors, right? They came kind of out of nowhere. We don't have a lot of good data why they suddenly, why the cities just suddenly started to happen. And he came up with this theory that there is an, an, an alien race that came to Earth. And for them, and they, they live on the 12th planet, something that we can't see right now because it's really far out in the, in the solar system and it's kind of dark and the, the, the atmosphere needs gold. So there's a lot of fiction in there, right? Yeah. But they came to Earth to harvest gold. They went to South Africa. They were mostly based in Africa and in Iraq, Iran. Um, to to find that gold to mine for gold, and they used human labor, but it was like like a, like a proto human, more like a Neanderthal uh, human. But even before that, right? That was that was kind of what the assumption that the that that book makes, and they used genetic engineering, and they have used that before, right? But they kind of looked at Earth as a way to produce labor, cheap labor from their planet, came here, um, introduced certain upgrades to our hardware over a long period of time, and then eventually built the precursors of their homo sapiens out of apes, or okay. whatever was the proto-human at that time, in order just to drive better labor. It's fiction, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what this story is so, so fascinating about is it takes a lot of these steps of human development that we can't explain. Also, we always ascribe it to magic, right? We ascribe it to something that is a higher intelligence slash magic slash God. And he, he kind of moved that into this, this alien master race, so to speak. And hmm. what, what I found fascinating is that their time horizon is very different. So they live 500,000 years. Um, and for us, it seems 500,000 years for us. For them, it's like 100 years of lifespan, right? So just because they're used to a different space-time, yeah. uh, he doesn't really go into details how this actually happens. But specifically, what do you think of this claim that a lot of people make, and you can call it quasi-scientific, that we had someone watching out for us? Like that there is this quantum computer, the universe, that that's must come from somewhere. There's a lot of intelligence inside. We don't know if it happened randomly or if someone designed it. That's, that's a simulation question. But broken down to what happened on Earth, is your gut feeling we've been influenced by something that is kind of watching over us, makes consistent upgrades, um, kind of moves around a couple of chess pieces, and, but lets it play out by evolution? Hmm. Is that your gut feeling? Or you think there was, there's nobody watching out over us? Yeah. Um... I, I still haven't found any articles that would make me push my, uh, my Darwinistic uh, faith, I guess. Um, well, Darwin I, is there. It's just, there, there's, there's, let's say, every 50,000 years, there's a major upgrade. Like kind of what we do with software, right? We push a major upgrade, and then we kind of let it run for quite some time, see what works the best, and then we run another major upgrade. Yeah. Yeah, the, I guess, I mean, then you can say, like, the big jumping points were the opposing thumbs, the, uh, the ability to walk on two legs, uh, the uh, development of the neocortex. I think when you look at it biologically, these were the three big changes 
that you can call versions. Um, and I, I guess I haven't really seen a lot of literature about how we got opposing thumbs or how we started going walking on two legs. Um, the thing about the, the neocortex, that kind of makes sense to me uh, from an evolutionary standpoint without any intervention because of the, the theory of the meteor uh, strike. Because it makes sense that if dinosaurs were became extinct about 65 million years ago, uh, then there would be this whole new game suddenly for this new mammal that had a small, of course, then you can say the, this new mammal, the rodent, that could have been, uh, or maybe the, the meteor strike was was uh, mm, triggered by this 12th planet also, or, or what did you call it? Uh, so maybe that also was uh, a part of the alien plan. If they created the meteor strike and they kind of tweaked the rodents so that they would have a bit of a limbic system and then just let evolution take its its right from there. Because I think from that moment, evolution by itself with no intervention kind of explains it. Um, yeah, there's these big upgrades, right? From time to time, we have this massive upgrade in complexity. Say, so where, where did the first wing come from? And you're like, hmm, I don't really know, but the wing eventually worked and then it took off. Or where did the first neocortex okay. come from, right? Hmm. Yeah. You can play this all the way down to the first cells. Like the, the, w w it, and when we see our development now, we don't let technology develop randomly. Yes, there's a random element, and we, we kind of put it in the wild and see what works. But the complexity in building it first is done by intelligent designers. And yeah. obviously, they, they don't know the, the, the future perfectly, but we don't develop by random because it's just... It rarely works, if ever, right? And there's so many things. So only very few things that we can look back last 200 years are completely random. It just, yeah. yes, there's serendipity, but that's something else. There is this desire to, as you say, master entropy with your intelligence. And it's not the other way around. Like entropy doesn't just, you don't become intelligent because you increase entropy. No, no, it's the, it's the other way around, right? And yeah. what evolution kind of, makes two claims. One is it's survival of the fittest and it figures out which one is best, right? That's, I think, 100% true. But one other claim is that it designs extremely complex systems out of nowhere. And that just doesn't feel right because we've never seen it in practice. And you can say, oh, it's billions of years and not like your little 50 years. So, of course, you're an idiot. You don't know. But still, this is really odd. Just yeah. when you go into details and computational analysis of how many probability or how many different probabilities you would have to go through to come up with these super complex designs, even the first cells, they're really complex. Yeah. I guess in that theory, that would also go for the Cambrian, Cambrian explosion then. Um, yeah. That that was also just triggered by uh, 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 Adam Smith's hand from uh, uh, just by aliens instead. Yeah, that, that, could, uh, that could be. Um, I think Carl Sagan also made a good point out of just trying to find the origin to see if he could create life from a pool, basically. Uh, yeah. uh, he felt quite certain that he could, uh, but I don't, I'm not ex expert enough to, to say too much about that. But I agree, Torsten, with your point that nowadays it is as if the survival of the fittest in, within humanity is getting more arbitrary. I mean, hospitals, for example, keep people alive 
further than than before. So, and and they are actually not even they they don't choose who what patients to take in and, and who they don't take in. They just take everyone in. Um, of course, there is randomization in when we are born or when we are conceived. That moment, there is a randomization going on. Um, but but all, other than that, I, I guess I guess we'll, we're going to have to find the new what the new fittest is. Beautiful is one way because then you get married to to people who get success, and then you might have more children. But that was also like that before. But I think intelligence, maybe that's that's probably the big one. But it's only until AI comes, then it's going to change again. Yeah, <laughs> you're not really eradicating my fears there. I want to ask you <laughs> about the simulation hypothesis. And you know, Nick Bostrom put this out about 20 years ago. It's kind of like one of those old themes, but I find it fascinating to see how people view the universe. What's your view on the simulation hypothesis? Um, do, do you think there is someone out there who is simulating us? Is that all just too far too abstract to think about? Where do you stand on this? I don't think it's too abstract to think about. I did read Nick Bostrom's article about it. Um, I I, so I saw um, uh, Orban's uh, take on it. Uh, I think that was quite interesting. He said that he, for selfish reasons, if I remember correctly, paraphrased, prefer a physical universe over a simulation. Um, I guess I'm a little bit more, uh, I don't care that much because I, I don't feel that I can do very much about it. I. I praise the experience of self that I have or the, the experience of sentience that I feel. And whether that sentience is in a simulation or not, it, uh, it doesn't change why I get up in the morning. I, it doesn't change my, my set of, uh, my, my sense of mission in life. Um, I, when you talk about that article, it says that either civilizations will never reach an advanced state uh, according to the great filters of the Fermi paradox or civilizations that reach a high high state will be uninterested in creating simula uh, simulations or thirdly we probably live in a simulation I don't actually think that there is a great filter that will impede us from becoming a great civilization. I think we're already quite close to being there. Uh, I also like Nick Bostrom's uh, fable about the, uh, uh, an urn with balls. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, where you every invention that you can imagine an urn with white balls in it, and humanity. Oh, yeah, I, I I remember, yeah, you have, and then, yeah. but if it's a danger of technology, right? So that's any any of that's those technologies can kill any anyone instantly. That's you about danger, and it's a bit about it's a bit about the great filter too, because if there is such a black ball, if there is a a, a number of black balls in that urn, that that's true for all alien civilizations, then uh, if if for example nuclear, if you if you could get a nuclear bomb by baking sand in an oven, then uh, that's a great filter. And I think we are so close now to a high intelligence that spirals out, 
that I don't I don't really believe in a great filter over us. So that's that rules out option number one. And I don't think that high 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 uh, level civilizations are uninterested in making simula simulations. So I kind of readily buy into the the argument that we are in a simulation. Um, but I don't really feel that I wish one or the other very much, because isn't also, it like an isn't it like an onion, Peter? So when when Copernicus thought about when, and figured out, well, we 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 actually rotate around the sun, right? He thought about the solar system. So he's like, okay, this is Earth, and now I want to go a little beyond that. I want to I want to meet the Creator, so to speak, right? So it was a deeply religious instinct <coughs> to find out who designed this thing. And like, uh, let's assume it was aliens. Uh, who knows if we can ever prove this or if it's even true. And then we peeled away the, the, the onion of the solar system. Now we went, oh, well, there's, there's a whole universe. Then we went to, well, it goes to the Milky Ways and star systems. And now we are kind of at this barrier of the universe. Like, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around it, but you, you do it for a couple of years, and a lot of physicists have to do it on a daily basis. You kind of live with the, this enormous amount of, of space, the universe, and all these trillions, billions of, uh, of star systems and suns. But isn't this just another layer of the onion? And you say, well, okay, this universe could easily be a PlayStation of one of those beings. Maybe, maybe yeah. this, maybe this. But there's probably a bunch of other universes around there. Why would the Big Bang be so singular? It makes no sense. To me, at least, it makes no sense instinctively. So this is for me the next onion. And then we say, well, we call it maybe not universe, but it's a super universe. And the super universe is a super universe. I don't think it will ever end. If, if I wrap my mind around this, it doesn't look any different than 500 years ago what Copernicus did. Why would we end at the universe? So if there are so many other layers beyond that that we won't see maybe in our lifetime, maybe we'll be lucky enough to see it that are being discovered, I, I don't see why there is why it has to end there, right? It's kind of like with Einstein, we thought about, okay, this is relevant, but then we realized, oh, quantum physics works slightly different, and it kind of breaks at certain points um, with, with standard relativity theory. So the same is true for universe. One day we will have something say, oh, this is how we can prove unit simulation, and deal done. And then we go on yeah. to the next layer. Maybe that's it. But uh, I think in, in physical terms, like in, when you talk about ethics and philosophy and, and uh, and the reason to get up in the morning, I think uh, the, the the desire to meet the creator is definitely a, a real uh, desire. That, I mean, I I used to dream when I was five years old. I actually thought that when I died, I would then get all the answers somehow told to me by God or something. When I believed in Him, um, but when you think about it, it what is actually the difference between uh, an onion layer that is a simulation and an onion layer that is a multiverse. Because what, like, which of those are the hardest to break through? Is it harder for us to go to a parallel universe, in like in the style of Rick and Morty, or is it more like, or is it easier to somehow communicate uh, with the creator of a simulation? Maybe we can somehow travel, get out of our simulation even our simulation, what's what's most difficult if we want to meet our creator? It's a good question. I'm not sure I, I know the answer. I read a really good book that, that is a fiction and handled that question really beautifully when there is an intelligence that develops randomly in, in, in the cloud. So it basically thinks the cloud is their life and they are, it's computerized and then eventually they start 
communicating with the outside world with us and they become the sentient being and they, they, they are this community intelligence. As we talked about that earlier, they, they don't have this definition of individuality that they solve that problem differently. Again, it's fiction, but it's really beautiful how it comes out and how it you know, helps humanity achieve their goals. Um, it becomes like just this different kind of sentient being that is just very different than what we've ever seen before. And uh, I love it because it's, they meet their creator. You know, I, I want to, I want to, if you don't, I think we're genetically selected to definitely have this instinct to meet our creator. It's, it's something that lives inside us and it gets like free will. The people who had that got it more ahead in life and had more children or were more, were more interested in, in advancing society. And so it became the standard repertoire of our behavior. And as more as we, 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 we encourage that behavior, I think it's more crazy and interesting discoveries we will make. Will we ever meet the creator? I don't know. It might take a long, long time. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? It's the, it's the journey that's the destination, right? Exactly. So I guess um, this, is, this is where I just uh, came online, actually, from this, these thoughts. And then I just... I just thought, okay, so if, like, what if we only live once? And uh, what if everything that we can take with us after we die is what we have given away? How can I give the most away in my life? Uh, that's basically what it made me think about. And then I, of course, stumbled up over uh, effective altruism uh, that with, with um, I, can, I think it, it started off in Oxford, where you, you basically think if you only have 80,000 80, hours of work in your, in your life, well, how can you spend those 80,000 hours the best? And I've been asking myself that question a lot. And that is what made me come up with, with the game uh, that I have, have developed to, uh, to, to take the world through the technology three tree and into the singularity and beyond when we talk about altruism it's certainly something that is in our hive mind that we've been as a human civilization is an incredibly powerful useful and 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 in the end not just for the society also for the individual strangely enough a positive behavior like is it it's not a zero-sum game human civilization because of all that's kind of the, the the unique insight of the creator or evolution, wherever we want to go with this. Yeah. Where do you see the guidelines? Maybe it's something we can we can look into further. In maybe there's a book or there's a way you've been inspired. Where are these? Where is the GPS to figure out? Should we be more altruistic in a certain situation in a certain life environment, or should we be more competitive, so to speak? And 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 not altruistic where, where do we go where is our gps and where, where do you where do you feel we are maybe in the current situation yeah so i the, this is one of the questions that this like it's a science it's a whole science of effective altruism they basically come up with the same answer that you allude to now that uh you 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 just do so much better for the world if, if you are a Bill Gates than if you are a volunteer in a tribe in Africa your whole life. Because if you're Bill Gates, then you just get rich. 
and then you just give away so much more. Um, but he was not altruistic for the first 50 years of his life. He was the complete opposite. He was an evil capitalist, so to speak. I, I don't <laughs> think capitalism is evil, but let's just use this picture. And then he turned around and said, oh, I give it away, and now, you know, I don't want to take all these billions to my grave. And I'm, I don't even know if he's completely altruistic right now. He kind of makes it sound that way, but maybe it's just a PR story. Yes. I am fascinated with Stoicism, Thorsten. And um, yeah. Stoicism is all about impact. So the intention is not so important. It's basically what, it, what kind of impact do you uh, place on the world? So um, maybe you can make a, a case for Bill Gates overall having done more evil than good in his life. If depends on how you interpret uh, uh, Windows. I certainly agree with you that it, that it wasn't an evil thing as such. It's a great tool also, even though I'm a Mac user. Um, but it certainly increased productivity worldwide. I mean, I think we all can agree on this. There might have been an even better solution, but that's the one that people chose yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, and, and this, is, this is also then where I became interested in gamification. Because if it's all about impact, and uh, you don't really have to think about intention, then the real question is how, how do you get people to collaborate in a way where they just together make the biggest impact? Maybe for selfish reasons, that's great. Let's just assume that altruism doesn't exist. I actually don't really think that altruism exists. I mean, a mother saving her child and giving her way in the process is, um, yeah, maybe it's altruistic, maybe it's selfish, maybe it's a part, maybe it's all just biological. Uh, but, but the point, but, but the thing that I became interested in is if you can gamify uh, actions and if you can make a roadmap, you ask about the GPS, you can make a roadmap for good. And when you say good, I mean, sci-fis have been thinking a lot about this. What is good actually? Is it good to just advance technology to the point where you have an AI that makes paper clips, or is it good to like th there's so many pitfalls? Um, so I have been extremely cautious when I made my technology tree to just really dial it back and say as long as it contributes to increasing sentience in any of these four ways, then it it cannot be it just cannot be described as evil. Uh, as long as you bite, in, bite into the into the the assumption that a universe is more infinitely more interesting uh, when it is sentient than when it is not sentient. Um, so, and from there, I just became interested in crowdsourcing and how to um, like open source. How awesome that is! And I know you also talked about that with um, with your other guest, Daniel Grass. Uh, about how how gamification and how open source can can just bring bring out something in people, and you don't have to call it altruism. Um, but when you remove money, people suddenly are open to become creative, and people want to be creative. 
and actually but do you uh, actually remove do you remove money because that's that's kind of my quandary with open source yes we think it's just altruism and for some people it might be right but in the end you you have to you have to see how you allocate your time and you do allocate your time and use open source as a way to scale your fame it, it's a great tool for this like it's like a best pr tool ever for developers they don't want they won't do so well most introverts on twitter but they will do very well on github if if they're really working on an interesting project and people will see that and will recognize it so again i don't think and i, I find that's really interesting as you say well altruism is actually it isn't, might not actually be true. It is selfishness that kind of masquerades as altruism to, to an extent. Because we, we, in the end, and that's kind of my baseline picture on the world, is all about productivity growth. It's making more with less. And that abundifies everything. And this is the history of the world, where it's a history of technology. If we come up with a, with a way to increase productivity growth, it's all soft. And this is what we're doing with the singularity, with all these technologies, they make us more effective. We can, we can do things that seem to be like extending the lifespan seems to be altruistic. But Aubrey Graham told me this. He's like, dude, you know, aging is, and you said that earlier with the Library of Alexandria, it's not just a problem that we want to live forever. It is, we, we, we train all these brains for all this time for, you know, until their 60s and 70s, and then we just let them go to waste. When we just change this and make them work for 500 years or 1,000 years, it would be much more cost efficient. And again, selfishness, right? So we make more tax money from these older populations. And maybe that is, is kind of the description of the universe, right? So it is productivity growth, and we, we will have to really be focused on it. I don't think it's, it gets any, any real debate out there or any real focus. We have Peter Thiel, um, who, who used that. I think that's, that's been a bunch of white papers before that, that the really worrying sign about the last 50 years is that productivity growth isn't where we wanted it to be coming out of the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Do you think we will reverse back to the mean and once all these technologies come online, we will see an amazing productivity growth in, in real GDP, adopt the statistics, and B, where do you think this will happen the most? Will developed economies do the best or will developing economies that did the best in the last 30 years because productivity growth in developing economies wasn't, developed economies wasn't that interesting? Where do you see the biggest impact? So when, if, if you're an investor, where would you put your money right now? Yeah, great question, Torsten. Um, I think that we have to th think about m what I call mission learning now. Um, I think that when we talk about 21st century learning, it is not the institutional learning that was invented for to create workers for the Industrial Revolution. Sit still from nine to five, do what the teachers say, think within the frames uh, that you are given, uh, don't riot, don't think too creatively. This, this is a, an institutional kind of learning uh, that, that, is, that belongs to the, the 19th century, uh, maybe a bit the 20th century, but when we, when we think about the 21st century, uh, we really have to go to a mission learning uh, concept. And I this is fully agree. Yes. Yeah, and the the studies here is that that uh, we learn best when we set ourselves a mission, and then we go about 
we we go towards our goal and then we reach a period we get in just in just in time resources and then we we try to um, overcome uh, our like fail forward basically and um this is what will make us learn the fastest and the reason why i talk about learning now is that uh productivity is i all i think productivity is also a 20th century uh, concept when we talk about human labor. Um, as computers and robotic robots become more and more uh, sophisticated, then the more logical part, the, the part, repetitive part or uh, me mechanical part of work will be taken over by machines, uh, which yep. is productivity. That leaves us with a more narrow window of creativity which is the, the workspace that, that we can have, the future of work. And um, creativity is a lot about having free time. You can't be creative. I, I, I challenge you to be creative if you are time constrained. Uh, somehow the good ideas come when you are in the shower or you're falling asleep uh, or when you block out three hours of your day to just space out. I think... Uh, this is also what Thomas Edison did, uh, or Picasso. They, uh, I think Thomas Edison, he, um, he, he kind of power napped. He fell asleep and he had keys in his hand. And the moment he dropped his keys, that was a, that he kind of woke up from his slumber with the new ideas. I think creativity. It's a great tale to tell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like Newton under the apple tree, which apparently was, isn't true. That's what Lisa Farr told me. Who knows? Who knows? She knows way better. She wrote a whole book about Newton. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so um, growth. So I think uh, productivity will happen because there will be machines to do it. But uh, creativity is the real workspace that we can that we should invest in. We should invest our own time. We should invest in other others' time in being creative. Um, so the, I think the, the people, the people who, who know how to be creative will be the future. If it's the developing countries, maybe it is. If it's the developed countries, maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, I have this suspicion. I'm fully with you. Creativity is what we should focus on. But it's so hard to define. It's so hard to learn creativity. Psychologists have big trouble even describing it. There's very difficult words. And as you say, we don't know how to trigger it. We don't know. Will it happen for the next 10 years? Will I have any ideas? And then there's this geniuses who have like crazy good ideas every single year and write great books and then they're done. And then the next 30 years is nothing. And you're like, how is that possible? Right. And they say, well, there's nothing there. I mean, I try, but nothing happened. That's true. So it's, but, it's, I think, it's, but I think that they, they, they have, what they do is that they, they, they do have an idea of what it isn't. Uh, you, it yeah. is creativity is not sitting in a school like if you if you go walk take take a child for a walk in the park and ask and then just listen to what the child says he will ask you why is the leaves green why is uh why are we walking on two legs why is uh he, he will ask you so many interesting questions and then take a 15 year old for a walk who have been through 10 years of schooling those the questions that the 15 year old will ask will be less interesting. I'm sorry to say, but that that's how I feel that the institution... No, you're right. Is. You're right, but it, 
you need a certain set of skills, routines, ap applied knowledge, abstract knowledge to live in the current world. Now, this might change, and we definitely are going, going towards more creativity, but you need those skills. And I see this with my teenagers. They're just on this cusp of where are they? Are we children or are we like grown-ups? And you need the grown-up skills to as well. I mean, we, we, we kind of see that as a given because we, we are too short in creativity right now, but we need both. Um, and it's, I think what's yeah. fascinating is we have this longer takeoff time that the 20s, 30s used to be productive times where you already had a job and you're 25, you would start your job. That's not true anymore. You know, you can dingle dangle until your 50s and you will still be fine, which is very yeah. cool. I mean, I'm really jealous of this. <laughs> I mean, I also dingle dangle. So <laughs> I, I, I like that. Mm. When we, when we think about this, this, the way we, we design our future, is there something, and there's probably lots of policy advice that you would give, but if, if you had like the top three options to change current public policy, maybe you feel like public policy doesn't matter so much. That's kind of what I feel. I'm like, well, whatever. You know, do whatever you want. It's not. It, it doesn't change any of these graphs. It doesn't change Moore's law. It doesn't change productivity growth much. It doesn't. Maybe there's a little bit of regulation we can do, but in the end, it's driven by public policy. There is only so much you can do as as a policymaker. But when you look at policymakers, if you would would talk to the president, what would you what would be your top three of suggestions? What we should change in current public policy for the next ten years? Okay. Wow. That is. Uh, that's a good question too. Uh, yeah, so institutions, definitely that, that's a big thing. Go towards more mission learning. I strongly encourage that. Uh, try to, um, try to um, give people reasons to learn rather than frameworks to learn. Because as it is now, there's so much just-in-time knowledge everywhere that you just need, um, I think, I can't remember who... Has, called it a grandmother. You just need a grandmother, basically. One who stands beside you and encourage you. She doesn't have to understand everything you do, but just uh, guides you through your emotions a bit as you as you fail and stand up again. Um, yeah. That is what- It's a wisdom, right? Yeah, yeah, well, wisdom, I, that's not what is meant by grandmother in this sense. In this sense, okay. you maybe you can call it emotional wisdom where you just, uh, you can, you can, uh, you can fall and then you have to have someone to say, what do you do when you fall down? You get back up again. That is a kind of a, um, an emotional wisdom that is what I, I really believe that is what we should, should teach children. But that's, of course, not institutions and policy as you ask for. Another aspect that I really call for in, uh, in policy is AI research, because this is, this is a, an aspect that is under-researched and uh, could have a very, very big impact, as I'm sure you agree. So, uh, and, and private companies, they only have so much uh, free time to, to research this. Uh, and if it is such a big, if it's going to have such a big impact, if we are just going to be the bootloaders, then, but if, if we at least get to invent it, then we could have a bit of a dent in the universe in trying to invent something good instead. And I think this is the same thing that Peter Diamandis, a uh, great hero of mine, uh, hero of mine is uh, saying when he says that if we are the first 
mm, if, if we are the first civilization to become a cross a multi-planetary species, then this is the moment in time where we actually are reaching the stars. And that means that the culture that we have now is what we will start to uh, expand to other planets from where the cultures will ev evolve later, but they will then evolve from this mother culture that we have now. So we kind of have, if we are going multiplanetary within the next 200 years, we really have a responsibility to, to create a, a set, set of values that are so um, sound, sound that they are worth being a mother culture for uh, a multiplanetary civilization with less communication, uh, with less yeah. intercommunication. It all dials kind back. Of, kind of what the British did for the rest of the world, right? I feel that's a role that the British, foot by accident, probably, yeah. because they were the dominating power when a lot of these places were, were populated, like the US or Australia. They had a major impact, and it, it went different routes, but it's so easy to trace back to those roots, right? So when, when you go to Singapore or Hong Kong, you know immediately, not just by, 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 by its common language, but you know there's, there's a lot of British heritage, and you know also where it ends, and where there's a different culture that has been swept in over time. That's really fascinating to me. I mean, I grew up in Germany, which doesn't really have that culture. It doesn't, didn't really have that impact on the world to be, for good reasons, probably. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, but the British had this really, this jumpstart in, in making places so much more productive and then just dropping them out of the system and they were fine. That's pretty amazing to me. I mean, there's a commonwealth, but I don't think it has that much of an impact in day-to-day -day decisions. Yeah, I mean, okay, you can, you can argue both for and against uh, the, the British... Uh, the, the, the dissemination of the British culture. Um, it is what it is, uh, but but at least with most- But it's not just the British culture, right? So it transformed into something different and that's pretty cool. Like it gave yeah. a lot of freedom to develop something else. And it's different, it's like in the Portuguese, Portuguese colony, that would be a similar example, a very different experience or in a Spanish colony, from a Spanish colony. They're just not on, it, it went a different life. It's more top down. It's more like we tell you what to do. And they didn't really encourage this bubbling up. Now, you can argue both ways. Maybe the British had other faults, 100%. I don't want to get into colonialism, but I'm just <laughs> saying it's, it, it gave this seemingly, to my understanding, a really good mix of freedom and also a great quality that the British brought with them. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. That's what I'm trying to say in many well, places, and and from my experience. From that point of view, I totally agree with you. Uh, of course, uh, multiplanetary uh, dissemination uh, is less, uh, I mean, there will probably not be other uh, alien cultures around our solar system. So in that way, it's, I guess it's gonna be a little bit more friendly in that way. Uh, but yeah, exactly. If we, then the, the British, they, they, they just knew their mother culture had such a big influence and if we can have the same influence on uh, the solar system, wow, what, an, what a responsibility. So governments have a responsibility and uh, they should then talk together to find a, uh, a solution to that. Um, because I think going to space is, you can maybe compare it with the Irish going to the United States and the the, Span the Span Spanish going to the United States and South America, uh, creating subcultures. Maybe that's what's going to happen. I kind of prefer that it is more coordinated, uh, that 
they will be more thought through than just, yeah, we happen to have the Spanish mindset, we happen to have the Irish mindset, uh, but just tr let's try to define now in governmental level what are good values um, that are worth spreading out. Uh, I go, yeah, that's really, going into religion. Yeah, I, lo I love how you say that. I think that's a, that's a point that most people, there isn't enough understanding, and I think this is obviously being solved right now with the internet. There is this immediate default, especially in the side and in a time of crisis, to go back to say nationalistic values and patriotism because it's just what you know and it makes you comfortable. But you don't spend enough time to really do comparative analysis of what's working in other places. And sometimes I feel like it's what well, the internet, at least lately, hasn't really helped, right? So people go into these rabbit holes and they stay there for like a year and they don't even want to hear anything else. They, they, they go into these echo chambers and they feel comfortable. And for them, it's really difficult to, for a lot of, and I see this in San Francisco a lot, it's really difficult to get out of this rabbit hole. And then they're out of it. And then they're like, oh, I don't even remember what I, what I thought a year ago. Yeah. And now I have a completely different opinion. That makes things really difficult, like a rational analysis of what long-term impact of policy and, and, and moral decisions it could happen, but I don't think we are there yet. I think we're just waking up and making this active decision. But before, we just adopted what, what we knew, right? What was, for, for some reason, comfortable to, to us. But very few people went around the world and said, okay, this is what I've seen. This is what I recommend. And then it was actually implemented. That happened, but it's, it's, it's a rarity in the past. And hopefully that changes now, as you're saying. I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. So those would be, those, those would be the things that I would recommend to a, a pres any given president. Well, Peter, I hope they're going to listen to you. <laughs> this, uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast. This was awesome. I learned so much. And I think yeah, you, you're a really bright mind and you, you're onto something there. And um, I really hope there is more positivity in what this singularity that sounds scary at first glance will really become in the public's eye. And I think you, you do a great job actually helping people to get to a more positive understanding. Thank you, Tarsten, and it's, it's my honor to be here. Absolutely. I hope we get to do this again. Yeah, let's do it. Talk soon. Talk soon. Take it easy. Until then, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.